You know, one of the many things Vermonters love to do is hike. And for good reason, right? We live in breathtakingly gorgeous country. The Long Trail is gorgeous. The view from Camel's Hump is gorgeous. The view from Mansfield is gorgeous. Get up to any significant elevation and you'll see sights that make you praise God for His handiwork in creation. Now the thing that's so obvious that nobody talks about is this. We hike during the day. Not the night. Apart from getting up early to see the sunrise or staying out late because you saw the sunset or because you're lost or because you're in the military, nobody hikes intentionally in the dark, right? So no one says to their friends, hey, I got an idea. Let's meet up at 11 o'clock p.m. and go for a hike. When was the last time you did that? If you raise your hand, you're strange. Why do we not do that? Because it's dark. You don't hike in the dark, you hike in the day. You can't see anything in the dark. Not only the gorgeous sights, but also the glaring dangers. You'll stumble in the dark. You'll fall in the dark. (laughs) These are incredible truths that I'm pouring forth, friends. You hike in the day. Write that down. Here's what I want to persuade you of this morning. If your life were a hike, and it is a hike actually, John Bunyan depicted it as a journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. It is a hike. And if your life were a hike, your entire life must be lived in the light. As Christians, we don't live like the unbelieving world. As Christians, we don't live like our former unbelieving selves. The world, our old selves, that would be darkness. And to do so would lead to stumbling. It would lead to falling. It would lead to death. Instead, we live in the light. We live in keeping with our new identity in Jesus Christ, who is the light. And whose gospel light has shone in our hearts. And who has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And so let's just flesh that out. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. Two main points this morning. Don't walk in darkness, 3 through 6. Walk as children of the light, 7 through 14. I want you to read 3 and 4 with me. Ephesians 5, 3 and 4. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. This is a call to avoid immorality. So just look at those first two ideas. Sexual immorality and all impurity. Those terms, those two terms, Paul intends those to be just a A big umbrella that encompasses every type of sexual sin. So, the first phrase is used in Scripture to speak of adultery. That would be sex outside of marriage. Or it's used to refer to fornication. That would be sex before marriage. 
The second one, immorality, when that's paired with the first one, it's just kind of a mop-up term that gets it at all the rest. So whatever isn't included in that first term is included in the second term by intention. And this instruction was really needed in Paul's day. So illicit sexual activity was an enormous problem for new Gentile converts in the church Because guess what? The Roman culture that they were being saved out of was a very sexually loose culture. But Paul essentially just says, hey, no more. No more. This this can't even be named among you. Not meaning like Voldemort. You don't say the name. Not that. Meaning it doesn't exist among you. If an outsider were to come into the Ephesian church from the world, if they were to come into the Ephesian church, he wouldn't find any of these things. They couldn't even be named there. And this instruction is very needed in our day. Brothers and sisters, quite simply, every form of sexual expression outside of marriage is not to be named among us. So, pornography, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, It is all out of bounds. We see right away, don't we, how out of step the church is with the prevailing culture. So much of what the culture celebrates, we're in Pride Month. This is out of bounds for the Christian. Now look at that third list, that third idea in that list, covetousness. Covetousness. So it's just a big word that gets at the idea of greed. What does that mean? Well, it means an... An unsatisfiable desire for more. Recall in chapter 4, Paul says the Gentiles are, are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They have an appetite for more that just, just can't be satisfied. I want more. Maybe more money than God seemed fit to give. I want more. Maybe more possessions than God seemed fit to give. I want more. Maybe more sexually speaking than God seen fit to give. But this is not to be named among saints either. Such an appetite reflects someone who hasn't feasted and isn't feasting on Jesus Christ through the gospel. He's the only one who can quench that thirst. And then notice what else Paul says to avoid. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking. What is this? It's debased talk. It's, it's dirty talk. It's, it's perverted talk. It's immoral talk. It's, it's locker room talk. It's talk that no self-respecting person would engage in if someone that person respected and admired were around and within earshot. You know what I'm saying? Paul says for the Christian, that kind of talk is out of bounds no matter who's within earshot or out of earshot. So what do you have here? Well, you have sexual immorality, you have greediness, and you have vulgarity. And I think those things make perfect sense to bring up, don't you? Isn't sex and money a source of temptation in every age? And our words. What's so significant about our words? Well, aren't they revealing of what's in our heart? 
So of course Paul would hone in on these things because they are ever-present realities. But they are ever-present improper realities among Christians. Now notice those two phrases at the end of 3 and at the end of 4. Verse 3, these things shouldn't even be named among you because that is what is proper among Christians or among saints. Verse 4, vulgarity should have no place among you because it is out of place. So these things are out of place. These things are improper. You know, when I was young, I had a friend and he wanted this particular haircut. I don't even remember what kind of haircut it was. I just remember his dad felt as though it would have been an improper representation of their family. It's like that here. These things are an, are an improper representation of the family of God's name. They don't, they don't suit those who are called by the name Christian. Instead, what suits us is thanksgiving. Let there be thanksgiving, Paul says. So interesting that he says this. So, so why not say, he's talking about impure lives and impure speech. Why not say, instead of those things, let there be holiness? Why not say, instead of those things, let there be purity? Two reasons, I think. One, because of the utter appropriateness of thanksgiving for us as Christians. Amen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. In Christ we have redemption through His blood. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance. In Christ we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Chapter 1. Of all the people in the world who have reason for thankfulness, Christians, we are at the very top of the list. If there is anything that should characterize the words that come out of our mouths that, of course, reflect the condition of our hearts, it's thankfulness. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift, 2 Corinthians 9.15. Give thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 136. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Brothers and sisters, thankfulness ought to be coming out of us like water out of a pipe. The second thing, though, is that thankfulness fuels walking in the light. He mentions thankfulness here because, number one, it's appropriate. Number two, because thankfulness fuels walking in the light. It's no wonder he names thankfulness here. Think about it. When you are filled with thankfulness that for all that God has done for you in Christ, when your cup overflows with gratitude for the fact that you were dead, now you're alive and you're a co-heir with Christ and you're loved by and under the care of Almighty God. Listen, that leads to purity. That leads to holiness. You know, if there's one thing businesses have come to understand, it's that employees work harder when they're told, work harder. No, no. 
If it's one thing they've learned is that employees work harder when their employees are internally motivated to work harder. Basically, what Paul is saying is thankfulness is an internal motivator to walk in the light. It's an internal motivator to say, yeah, I don't want these things that are improper in my life. I want my life. I want my lips. I want everything to be a right representation of the family name. So these things are improper among Christians. But please be clear. When Paul says improper, he's going like, like way beyond the idea of manners or appearance. So this isn't like improper, like don't wear a Speedo on Sunday, okay? Don't do that. But that's not what he's talking about. It's not that kind of improper. We're not in the realm of social or societal convention that one thing might be okay here or not here. We are in the realm of eternal life and death. Verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure who is, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So first, notice the connection. Verse 3 and verse 5 match. Verse 3, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. Don't let it be named among you. Why? Verse 5. Because no one who is sexually immoral, no one who is impure, and no one who is covetous is what? Going to be in heaven. This stuff can't characterize you because if it does, you won't be in heaven. Paul says the same thing in other places. 1 Corinthians 6, appealing to the Corinthian church to walk in the light. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither to the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now this doesn't mean that if you've done any of these things, you're condemned. It doesn't mean that. Heaven is going to be filled with men and women who are like this, but who came to know Jesus Christ and were gloriously changed. In fact, in the Corinthian passage that, that, that I just quoted, Paul says, that exact thing. He says, such were some of you. You were those things. <laughs> but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. So follow me here. Jesus saves sinners. Jesus saves real sinners. Praise God. But here's the deal. When Jesus saves a sinner, he changes a sinner. So if someone's pattern of life continues to reflect the patterns and lifestyles of unbelievers, those who are still in darkness, that person needs to know he likely isn't a true Christian. So let me just tease out for you a couple of implications of this. Number one, this means, friends, this means you cannot rely upon a confession of faith at some point in your life as evidence of your salvation. This is kind of a scary thought, but the Bible tells us that hell will have people in it who thought they were Christians right up until the moment they saw Jesus. So we're warned that in the coming day of judgment, many will say to him, Lord, Lord, and they will appeal to him that they are his, that they know him. But Jesus will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. 
Here's the deal. The evidence of salvation is not primarily a confession of faith. It is the transformation of your life. Please write that down. The evidence of salvation is not primarily a confession of faith. It is the transformation of your life. When you come to know Jesus, he changes you. So he changes your thoughts. Changes your actions. He changes your inclinations. He changes your desires. It's like the weirdest thing in the world. You come to know Christ. You, you say something out of step with Scripture and you think, Oh, I don't want to do that anymore. Or you, you, you come to know Christ and you do something that's out of step with Scripture and you think, Oh, I don't want to do that anymore. It's like you're possessed, and you, and you are possessed, actually. You're possessed of the Spirit of God, and you can't sin with abandon anymore. And so what you do is you, you start to hate it when you sin. You start to hate sin. You start to love righteousness, and it's like you're being pulled in by a tractor beam to heaven. And it just keeps going until the day you meet Jesus, it never stops. You hate sin more and more. You love Jesus more and more. You walk less and less in the darkness. You walk more and more in the light. All the way. Now the other thing I want to bring out for you that is obvious, but I don't want to fail to state it. Knowing Jesus doesn't mean you're never going to sin. You will sin. You will sin. You will fall sometimes terribly. The question is, what's the pattern of your life? What's the trajectory of your life? What characterizes your life? Is it light? Is it walking in the light? Or is it darkness? Is it walking in thoughts and ways and words that are more like the world than Christ? Some of you listening to my, me right now are strengthened. So you're more and more resolved to walk in the light. Some of you listening to me are sobered. So you're convicted about sin and darkness in your life and you know you need to repent. And some of you listening to me are scared. You're wondering, perhaps I'm not a true Christian. So let me say to all of you, no matter what your response, you need Jesus Christ. You need Jesus Christ this moment. You need to go to Him. You need to do business with Him. You need to cling to Him. You need to seek Him. And you need to keep doing so. If you're feeling strengthened, your strength will increase. If you're feeling sobered, your sobriety will turn to steady, solid repentance. And if you're fearful that you are not His, there is no better person to go to. Because those who are His seek His face. So seek it. These are sober things. And in verse 6, Paul gives us another sober warning. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So Paul ends this little section with a warning about false teachers. And what false teachers do is they deceive people with empty words. Okay? Empty words. You see that there? Empty words like, hey, you don't have to walk in the light. Hey, it's okay to walk in the darkness. 
And so those are the empty words that false teachers speak, but that justifies immorality, but immorality is what leads to the wrath of God. And so Paul warns, well, beware of those who justify immorality. He may be warning against a specific false teaching that's prevalent in the day, in his day. That's possible. So there were guys in the early church that were known as Gnostics, and what they did was they separated the body from the soul so far apart, and they said, hey, listen, here, here's the deal. The body doesn't matter, only the soul so basically, you can cut loose and do whatever you want to do with the body, and it doesn't affect your soul. Okay, you can see where that would go, all right? But I actually think, given that there's no specifics here, I think he's just warning us in general. I think he's trying to protect us from those who would justify immorality. And that's so important, because in every age and in every culture, there are winds that blow, that are out of step with the Bible. And that's why we need the church, right? Right? Ephesians 4.14, so that we may be no longer tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. But here's what we also know. In every age, the church is tempted to trim the sails of biblical morality and ethics to fit the winds of culture. Okay? In every age, the church is tempted to trim the sails of biblical ethics and morality to, to fit the winds of culture. Hence this warning. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Beware of those, friends, who would justify immorality. Now, Paul shifts here. And he actually doesn't shift. He just makes clearer what he's been getting at all along. So, don't walk in darkness, 3 through 6. Instead... Walk as children of the light, 7 through 14. So let's just pick up in 7 and let's just read through 14. Therefore, don't become partakers with them. So keying off of the last several verses, right? Knowing that eternity is at stake. You know, knowing that there are those who would justify immorality. Don't participate in that stuff. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper. And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So here we have this rich metaphor of light and darkness that's given to us explicitly. Light, of course, represents God and godliness. I think you can see that. That's obvious. Darkness, of course, is representative of unbelief and rebellion. And Paul's talked about darkness a lot already. He says Gentiles are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God, 4.18. Or looking at chapter 6, he says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? Well, so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against the cosmic powers of this present darkness. So you see the metaphor, right? And you see the point. 
there's darkness, there's light, there's, there's Christ-likeness, then there's that which is not in keeping with Christ-likeness. And we are to walk in the light, not in the darkness. But notice why, according to verses 7 and 8. Why do we walk in the light, according to verses 7 and 8? Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Look at that first phrase. For at one time you were darkness. What's that talking about? Well, it's talking about our lives as non-Christians. But notice what he says. He doesn't say, at one time you were in darkness. He doesn't say, at one time you were like darkness. He doesn't say, at one time you were surrounded by darkness. He doesn't say, at one time you were kind of dark. He just says, you were darkness. It's just a statement about you. You were darkness. And this is the exact opposite of what you hear in any TED talk that you might listen to. Or in any prevailing messaging of our day. This is a clear statement that apart from Christ, you are not fundamentally a good person. You were darkness. Christian, that's every single one of you before you came to faith in Christ. Now, does that mean you were as dark as possible? No, thankfully, there's only one Hitler, and praise God for that. But don't let that blunt the force of this text. Who you were before Jesus Christ was spiritual darkness. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. This is who we were. But it is not who we are now. So look back at verse 8. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. What's changed? Well, our spiritual union with Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. Because we've been united with him by faith, we are no longer darkness. We are light. And so you see what Paul is arguing here. He's saying, walk according to who you are. Walk according to who you are. You're not darkness anymore. You're not an Adam anymore. You are light. And so walk in the light. It's really, Paul saying, live according to what's already true. This is honestly so encouraging, brothers and sisters. I want you to remember this morning, God already sees you as light. God sees you as morally and ethically Pure, just as pure as His Son, because you are in His Son. And so this is Him saying to you, Christian, be what you already are. Live what you already are. And so what does that look like, practically speaking? Well, it looks like displaying goodness and righteousness and truth. Walk as children of the light, verse 8. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. So goodness, righteousness, truth. What are those? Well, it's just, this is who God is. God is good. 
Give thanks to the Lord, for He is, say it to me, good. God is righteous. The rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity is He. Righteous and upright is He. Deuteronomy 32. God is true. Paul says, let God be true, though every man were a liar. Romans 3, 4. That could be a summary of the whole Bible. Everything God says is true. No matter what anybody else says. And so since these things characterize God, these things should characterize us. These things are the fruit of the light in our lives. And as we walk in the life, we will be living a living letter for all to see of what goodness and righteousness and truth is. Now, of course, what those things look like in practice is going to take discernment, right? So that's why we have verse 10. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So the outworking of goodness and righteousness and truth is going to look different in different scenarios. And so we're going to need discernment. We're going to need wisdom. We're going to need clarity and courage to navigate the very confusing pathways of life, right? So walking in the light, what does it look like? Well, it looks like displaying goodness, righteousness, and truth, and discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, I want you to throw your eyes back on this text, specifically 11 through 14, and let's just see how Paul, the closer that he is, comes in in the ninth inning to close out the ballgame. Verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that are done by them in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now on one end, this just makes total sense, alright? Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Copy that. Makes total sense, Paul. That's where you've been going. I'm following you. But then look at what he says next. But instead, expose them. So obviously as Christians, we walk in the light. All right. But then Paul lays upon us this obligation to expose the deeds of darkness. What does that mean? I want to suggest to you, brothers and sisters, this isn't about walking down the streets of Burlington saying, You're a sinner. You're a sinner. And you're a sinner. That sin. That sin. And that sin. So, too, I want to suggest to you, this is not about getting onto social media and outing every ungodly thought, action, or piece of legislation. Heavens knows there is plenty to call out, all right? The exposing here is actually a much more personal and precious thing. Brothers and sisters, the idea here is that as Christians, we have an obligation to lovingly point out sin in one another's lives. I say this for two reasons. Number one, more broadly, if you just read Paul's letters, you're going to see that he centered his attention not on the sin in the world, but on the sin in the church. 1 Corinthians 5.9 I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the immoral um, swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you'd need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. 
For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. So when Paul talks about sin, follow me here, he's not mainly focused on sin out there. Yes, yes, he identifies sin. Yes, yes, he would have us to identify sin. Yes. But his main heart and focus is on sin in the church. Sin cannot abide in the church. And so it must be lovingly exposed. The idea here is similar to Galatians 6 verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The reality is walking in the light is a church-wide effort, brothers and sisters. So I wonder if you've ever just thought about this. But our job, your job, if you're a member of Redeeming Grace, is to help each other get to heaven. That is what we are here for. We are not a social club. We are not a service organization. We are not a mutual admonition, ad, admiration society where, where we come together to congratulate one another on how nice looking we are. We are a church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a community of sinners who've also become saints because we're all saved by the blood of the Lamb. And we are committed to helping one another walk in the light because we are children of the light. Amen? And so sometimes we have to point out areas in our lives that are not in keeping with the light. But that is grace. That is grace because verse 13 says, But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. So, when we help one another by shining the light of God's word on blind spots... And keep in mind, friends, blind spots by definition are things you don't see. (laughs) You're like, I don't have any blind spots. All right, let's take a step back. (laughs) When God's word is shined on the blind spot, what happens? It's no longer a blind spot and you see it. You didn't see it, but now you do. And so now what do you have the opportunity to do? To address it by the power of the gospel. Oh, Lord Jesus, this is part of the reason you died on the cross. To pay the price for this sin. Oh, thank you, Lord. And help me to put it away. And help me to live in the light. You see, when sin is exposed, the power of the gospel can go to work. And in fact, that seems to be what Paul communicates by that last little phrase. For anything that becomes visible is light. You're like, what the heck does that mean? It seems to communicate that when the light of God's word shines upon our sin, not only is it exposed... The gospel actually goes to work on it. It's like bleach on mold. It just eats it away. And it cleans it up. And it leaves a bright, shiny surface. And so when the mold of our sin is exposed by the light, the transforming power of the gospel does its purifying work in our lives and we become more like what we are, light. And finally, Paul concludes with what's either a stitched-together quote from several passages in the prophets, or it's a quote from an early Christian hymn. He says, Awake, O sleeper, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. 
That's a beautiful way to close out this section. And I want you to know it's a promise. It's a promise that can be applied to both believers and unbelievers through the gospel. So non-Christian, listen to me. Awake. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. You are dead in your transgression and sin. That is your state, but this morning is a new day. The light of the gospel is shining, and it's offering you light and life. I want you to take it. Let it expose the darkness. Let it come in. It doesn't doesn't expose you to wound you, but to ultimately heal you. Stop hiding from it. It is a good light. Come to the light. Jesus Christ is the light, the light of the world. And He died on the cross and He rose again to pay the price for your sin if you will but turn from your sin and trust in Him. Christ will shine on you. Respond to the gospel even this morning, friend. And to my brothers and sisters, this is a reminder to us of the sanctifying power of the gospel. As we make our way away from the city of destruction and to the celestial city. Let the power of the gospel continue to do its good work in you. Let it expose the darkness. Let it drive out the darkness so that you increasingly live in the light of Christ, in the light of day. And Christian, hear me. You must do this. This exhortation to walk in the light like last week's exhortation to continue to take off the old clothes, the old man, and put on new clothes, the new man. This is no mere suggestion. Good idea. This is life or death. Please don't forget verses 5 and verses 6. For you may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This call to live in the light is a heaven and hell in the balance type of thing, brothers and sisters. So I'm just wondering... If that's on your mind, as you think about sin in your life. So like, how do you treat your sin? The sin that you know is there. So here's a question. Do you play with it? I actually have a good friend in Florida. Some of you know him, Richard Lucas. He's in Florida now, the land of heat. Don't covet. And uh, he, it's also the land of alligators and all sorts of really big snakes. And he had some folks in the church uh, who had a python. This is a true story. He had a python, huge python, like I don't know how big, like ginormous. And they actually let that python sleep with them, this couple, married couple. Is that weird? Yes, it's weird. Okay, but yeah, just get past it. The python would sleep with them, and the python stopped eating. Um, at first they weren't concerned about it, but then it went on for over a month and it stopped eating. And they were like, what the heck is going on? And so they took it to 
uh, a vet and, and explain to them the whole situation. And the vet, as a good doctor does, asks more questions. And then the vet said, your pet is preparing to eat you. Okay. The pet was starving itself to prepare itself to eat them in their sleep. Think about it. Their pet was going to take their life. They stopped sleeping with the pet. The pet began to eat. So good news, they're still alive. The question is, do you play with your sin? It's funny. It is. It's crazy. And you playing with sin is just as crazy. Your pet is going to eat you. You can't play with sin. You cannot play with sin. So do you play with it? Don't play with it. Do you hide it? Do you try to hide it from the light of the day? Do you try to hide it from your brothers and sisters? Do you try to hide it from those who know you? Brothers and sisters, don't hide it. Confess it. Confess it to a brother or sister here in this church. Bring it to the light. There is nothing to fear in bringing it to the light. No judgment, no condemnation from God or for your brother and sister in Christ. Why? Because the cross has exposed all of us as sinners in desperate need of grace. And so there's nothing to hide. Bring it to the light and let your brothers and sisters help you run from it. Let's walk in the light, brothers and sisters. Let's walk in the light together. This journey to heaven is a corporate journey. It is not an individual one. We do this as a church. So just look around you. This is your band of brothers. This is your thicker than blood family. And we are determined... To make it past all of the challenges and to enter into that goodly land together. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, we are yours. We are sons and daughters of light. Help us to continue to live in keeping with what is already true. In Jesus' name, amen.